This week on a brand new episode of Let's Talk About Chef, I am very pleased to bring you another rendition of Let's Review. This week, I will be reviewing the first cup of coffee in the morning known as the Royale, and also Montreal restaurant Joe Beef, which I had the pleasure of dining in last week. I would like to point out, as with all review episodes, that I am in no way affiliated with either the first cup of coffee that you drink in the morning or the restaurant Joe Beef, and that these opinions are entirely my own. If you like the Let's Review episodes and are new to Let's Talk About Chef, you can go check out our other review episodes on Momofuku, the anonymous hot dog vendor outside of the Rogers Center, Alouette, Salt, the pizza that made me want to be a chef, and my grandmother's sexist pies on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. I want to take one second to thank iTunes for making Let's Talk About Chef a new and noteworthy podcast last week. It was really staggering to see how many new listeners have joined our little show. If you want to reach out to the podcast for any reason, you can write to letstalkaboutchef at gmail.com or you can follow me personally on Instagram at Chef Brian Clark. That's enough from me. Let's get right into this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef. I am somewhat addicted to coffee. I honestly have a slight addiction to a lot of things. Up until very recently, I loved and was addicted to smoking cigarettes, something that I finally gave up because as much as I enjoy inhaling that sweet, sweet cigarette smoke, I like being alive a lot more. I'm addicted to the band The National and Miles Davis's Kind of Blue album. I was able to overcome a very real and expensive addiction to cookbooks But the one thing that I am addicted to more than anything else and that I love more dearly than anything else is coffee. The first cup of coffee that you have in the morning is called the Royale. And it can mean a lot of different things for a lot of different people. In some cultures, such as Italy, the day isn't started until espresso has been drunk. In Paris cafes, cafe au lait and cigarettes are what you do in the morning. And for me, after experiencing those cultures in my younger and more impressionable days, I went from a non-coffee drinker to a full-blown addict in a very short period of time. My nightly routine will always end with me getting the coffee ready for the next morning. I line up the cup, the spoon, put water in the kettle ready to pour into the French press, even put the beans in the grinder measured to the exact amount that I need. I can't go to sleep until I know that there is coffee ready for me the next day. It's something that I've done for years, and of course I realize that doing this is somewhat similar in nature to a heroin addict lovingly laying out a needle in a spoon next to a lighter, but I don't care. I look forward to coffee in the morning so much that it puts a smile on my face thinking about it at night. But we don't get to me in my kitchen grinding beans and obsessing over the water to grind ratio in my French press without hundreds, even thousands of years of progress. The real truth is that nobody really knows when human beings started to drink coffee, but we have an educated guess. Coffee grows and continues to grow wild in Ethiopia, and it was there that a goat herder named Kaldi apparently first discovered the potential for the beans being turned into a drink to keep you awake. 
The reason that Caldi discovered that caffeine in the coffee beans was because his goats ate some of them and stayed awake all night, energetically running up and down the hillside, keeping Caldi up all night as well, trying to catch them. Caldi told the local monastery about what he had discovered, and the monks listened to him describe how he boiled the beans in water to make a drink that helped him stay awake and able to chase his goats, so the monks began collecting and drinking the coffee beans to help them stay awake, praying throughout the night. Coffee quickly became popular in the Arab Peninsula, and by the 16th century was being grown from Egypt to Turkey. Coffee houses started to pop up in cities where people would gather to drink coffee and talk, read, listen to music, or hear about the news. These early versions of cafes were called schools of the wise, and even the Arab royals would leave their castles to partake in this new and exciting drink that made them stay awake and enjoy life. Coffee shops in Mecca would be visited by Europeans who were making their way across the continent, and word quickly made its way back to Europe about this dark brown beverage that had magical qualities. Of course, Europeans being afraid of everything that came from the Middle East called coffee the bitter invention of Satan, and the church in Venice condemned it to hell when sacks of beans finally made their way to Venice on ships in 1615. Because the public was in such an uproar about Satan's beans making landfall, the Pope himself, Clement VIII, was asked to intervene from Rome. He made his way to Venice, and being the spokesman for God, tasted the first ever prepared cup of coffee in Europe. Deciding that he actually liked it, he proclaimed that there was no way Satan could make something that delicious, and that coffee was actually divine intervention. Despite most Europeans being God-fearing people, the fact that the Pope had said that this inherently Muslim drink was safe for all of them to drink, it didn't really swing the hearts and minds of a God-fearing public to suddenly all love coffee. In France, wine merchants had been enjoying a very long and very affluent monopoly, and that was suddenly threatened by the introduction of coffee to the public. And so they rallied against coffee, creating a sort of hysteria against the new drink. French doctors would try to one-up each other on terrifying diagnosis of coffee, with one doctor even saying that it dried up the cerebral spinal fluid and caused convolutions. Coffee could cause paralysis and even impotence in men. By the 1670s, just like in the Middle East, coffee houses began to pop up in major cities all across the continent. These coffee houses were called penny universities, because for a penny you could get a cup of coffee and learn something. And with more and more people switching from wine or beer in the morning to coffee, there was an actual shift in European productivity. Which kind of makes sense when you think about a population of coffee drinkers in the morning compared to a population of people chugging liters of gin and then trying to operate machinery. By the mid-17th century, there were over 300 coffee houses in London alone. And you weren't anyone unless you were seen in one of these cafes drinking coffee and conversing with other business types. Hanging out in coffee bars in England became so popular that the wives of the men frequently the cafes would lie alone at night, in bed wondering where their highly caffeinated husbands were, and finally they had enough. So in 1617, a women's petition pamphlet was printed, quite literally called the Women's Petition Against Coffee, which presented itself as a plea from the sex-starved wives of coffee-drinking husbands who were so addicted to coffee that they had lost all interest in copulating with their wives. And I quote, for can any woman of sense or spirit endure with patience that when she approaches the nuptial bed expecting a man that should answer the vigor of her flames, she, on the contrary, should meet a bed full of bones and hug a meager useless corpse? 
The men answered this pamphlet with one of their own, stating that coffee collects and settles the spirits, makes the erection more vigorous, makes the ejaculate more full, and adds a spiritual essency to the sperm, and renders it more firm and suitable to the gusto of the womb, and proportionate to the adores and expectation of the female paramour. After that pamphlet, the men seemed to have won the great coffee argument. Coffee didn't make their sperm weak, and it did not make them not want to have sex. And the wives who lay waiting for their husbands to come home from drinking coffee until all hours of the night would remain sex-starved. Problem solved. Nowadays, of course, coffee has become just another facet of modern life. There are Starbucks or Tim Hortons or Dunkin' Donuts on literally every single street corner. We are long gone from the days of sex-craving wives demanding that their husbands stop drinking coffee all night long, and now live in a world where 73% of North Americans wake up to a cup of coffee. Every single day, over 2.25 billion cups of coffee are consumed. There are over 29,324 Starbucks locations worldwide. Tim Hortons, the Canadian and now international staple, makes over $3.25 billion a year. Coffee has become the most popular beverage in the world, with more than 400 billion cups being consumed every 365 days. But every morning when my dogs wake me up at 6am before my alarm can, when every single day I stumble down the stairs and press the button on my kettle to start boiling the water, and I stand there waiting while the dogs play outside, and I check emails on my phone before the sun comes up, as the grinder pulverizes the beans, I read about how Trump fucked something up again, or Justin Trudeau wore blackface to another party not too long ago. I check reviews on the restaurant or read emails from listeners. I usually tell my Alexa to play one of the 10 albums that I have listened to consistently for 10 years straight, and I sigh and I look out the window onto the world around my home. The fields that never change, and the clouds starting to show the slightest spark that the sun is coming. I used to go outside and smoke. I don't do that anymore, so now I just stand there and stare and listen to the world news through the internet. A world that I couldn't be further removed from. I stand there in my kitchen and I drink the Royale. The first coffee of the day. The coffee that is mine. The moment that I'm alone. Before the phone starts ringing, the chip machine starts to clatter every few seconds at work before the snow fills the driveway and I shovel myself out so I can get to work, before the fire goes out on the wood stove and I have to bring in wood from the freezing winter air to heat up the house, before the laundry needs to be folded or the podcast needs to be recorded or the thought that the mortgage is due in 13 days or any of the other million things that fill our lives with stress and the torture of being adults, for that one brief minute with the Royale, I'm by myself and I'm okay. I'm giving the Royale five stars.
When you say the name Joe Beef, several things can come to mind. Images of Montreal, of David McMillan and Fred Moran stuffing Anthony Bourdain full of foie gras and jugged rabbit in an ice fishing shack on the St. Lawrence River. Joe Beef can mean opulence. It can mean overindulgence. It can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. For Canadians, that name fills us chefs and cooks with pride. The sheer fact that so many internationally known chefs name Joe Beef as their favorite restaurant is something to be proud of. The fact that these two lifelong friends somehow managed to make a restaurant from nothing in a nowhere area of Montreal into one of the temples of dining on a global scale is staggering. The sheer fact that so many other restaurants have tried and failed to rip them off while they have thrived is also kind of amazing. But even as I spent the last eight or so years fully obsessed with every television show, every podcast, and every article about the restaurant, I had never been there. It remained a mystery. How could a restaurant, just a restaurant, be at the top of every person's best of list? What did they have? What did they do that I didn't understand? It didn't make any sense. Expectations are a dangerous thing. When we expect something great, something magnificent, it can oftentimes be a letdown. Expectations can destroy a person's experience. There is a very real and kind of amusing malady called Paris Syndrome, where people have built up what Paris is going to be like in their heads for so long that when they actually get to the city and it isn't everything that the movies and books and songs have made them believe they were going to experience, they end up in the hospital having convulsions and sobbing uncontrollably. We have all been to concerts of bands we loved and left feeling somewhat let down. We have all lost the allure of having a new car. We have all left a movie theater disappointed. And we have all paid the check at a restaurant that we have looked forward to going to feeling somewhat underwhelmed. To say that my expectations of Joe Beef were high when I opened the door to that restaurant last Wednesday evening at 7.40 would be an understatement. I have been lucky enough to eat and travel to some of the greatest restaurants in the world. I have looked forward to going to all of them, but none of them as much as I wanted to eat at Joe Beef. Joe Beef didn't just meet my expectations. It didn't just slightly surpass them. It destroyed them. It left me sitting at the bar staring at the plates and plates coming from the kitchen in awe. It left me questioning why I would even think to call myself a chef, and it was the single greatest experience I have ever had in a restaurant. It left me and my wife wandering around Montreal at 11.30 at night in negative 15 degree weather for 45 minutes after our meal, unable to feel the cold and completely glowing. I am not one to shy away from talking about restaurants. It should be very apparent to all of you listening that I am never at a loss for words. I made an entire podcast that up to this point has about an 8 hour running time just of me talking. I can write and I can talk. But for the first time in a very long time, an entire week later, I am still speechless. I don't want to explain to you why Joe Beef is the greatest restaurant I have ever been to. I don't want to tell you how well my wife and I were treated. How David McMillan kept sending food out of the kitchen off menu. How the sommelier kept pouring the most ridiculously delicious wines, amaros, and digestifs. 
I dropped my fork in shock from eating the most delicious turnip, a turnip that was cooked in foie gras fat and apples on the floor, that the restaurant smells like herbs and bacon, that the fire is the only light in the one dining room, and you feel like you're in a cabin on a mountain, even though you're feet away from a busy road in Montreal. I don't want to go into the details because I want you to go for yourself. For the first time on Lit's Review, I'm not going to be able to review Joe Beef. I'm not able to because seven days later, I still cannot comprehend that experience. I cannot fathom how perfect everything was, and I cannot explain how welcoming and wonderful Joe Beef is in a podcast. If there is a wizard behind the curtain at Joe Beef, I hope to God that he never gets exposed. I hope that you can all go to Montreal and experience that place. I hope that you get to eat there, so that when you hear people say that it's the best restaurant they've ever been to, you will understand why, even though, like me, you won't understand how, but you will hopefully, like me, get it. I'm Brian Clark. I'm a chef. I'm a cook. I have eaten in thousands of restaurants. I have traveled all over the world eating. I am obsessed with food. I am obsessed with chefs. And I am obsessed with figuring out how restaurants and food work. If you believe Malcolm Gladwell's opinion that if you spend 10,000 hours doing something you should be considered an expert, then I can humbly claim to be that. And with all of the knowledge, bias, hours and hours in kitchens and restaurants and reading cookbooks and studying food, I can honestly say to you, Joe Beef is the best restaurant in the world. And you need to go. I'm giving Joe Beef in Montreal five stars. I hope that you enjoyed this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef. It was written by me, Brian Clark. I obviously want to shout out the staff at Joe Beef and David McMillan and Fred Moran. If you want to write to the show for any reason, you can send everything to letstalkaboutchef at gmail.com or you can follow me personally on Instagram at Chef Brian Clark. We are back next Thursday with another brand new episode of Let's Talk About Chef. And so until then, as always, I'm Brian Clark. Have a great service and have a great week. C'est payé.